Recipes for Grief, Heartfelt Storytelling for Feely Foodies. I'm your host, Andrea Sexton Dumas. Today's guest is my friend and mentor, Carmen Spaniola. We covered so much here. I actually took notes while editing this episode. A couple things I wish we had more time for includes growing and cooking with medicinal plants, as well as accessibility and privilege around eating fresh and local foods. There's a couple terms here that I want to speak on before you hear the episode. The first of which is dark night of the soul. Its first known usage, at least for me, is from St. John of the Cross. It's also been used by Mother Teresa and Joseph Campbell. It sounds like exactly what it is, considered perhaps a spiritual dryness or a sense of withdrawal of God's presence, or to put it straight, really hard times. We also speak about collapse. Carmen has a great deal of content on IG, her website, as well as her podcast about this topic. And more generally, you can think of collapse as some of the things we've really been experiencing since COVID came into our awareness, but these things are certainly not limited to the past few years. Shortages of food and goods, chaotic weather patterns that have serious downstream effects, economic turns, as well as mass death that included or didn't include proper grieving rituals. And in many places did include things like mass burials, estrangement from loved ones' bodies, and each other during our grieving processes. If you're someone who's noticed how deeply you've been affected by these things, or you may feel an impending doom on the horizon, well, you're in good company. And I definitely recommend diving down the rabbit hole of collapse awareness and preparedness that Carmen offers on her various platforms. Lastly, I want to give you a heads up that the sound quality of this episode is not as clear as I would have preferred. It actually reminds me of when I was a kid and my grandmother would go to bed at 8 p.m. and I would be up hours later trying to watch David Letterman with the volume on the lowest possible setting so I wouldn't wake her. But watching David Letterman was still worth it for me. I hope you feel the same about this podcast, that the alchemy of the conversation we had is worth your effort in attuning your ear to hear clearly. Carmen Spaniola is a Le Cordon Bleu trained chef turned trauma recovery practitioner, clinical hypnotherapist, and kitchen witch. She is author of The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year, host of the Numinous podcast, and founder of the Numinous Network, an online learning and support portal for people healing from trauma through a cross-pollination of somatics, attachment, and nature-based spirituality. As a chef, author, and facilitator, Carmen holds space for renewal amidst turmoil. Her work is an invitation to re-enchantment, soul nourishment, and a deeper and more animistic relationship to the natural world. She provides frameworks and skills to create cultures of collective care in precarious times. Carmen, how have you been sleeping recently? You know, that Saturn and Pisces transit, I started dreaming mm-hmm. about whales and whales in with some kind of educational 
educational component adjacent to it. So my dream life has been so active, very Neptunian. Everything very, and like almost to a literal degree. I think the very first day, the first night, that transit, I was dreaming that my husband Ruben and I were teaching and we were like holding space and kind of like we were doing quests, but in a different place than we normally lead it. So not out on the mountain, but like around the ocean. So it had that very Saturnian, you know, like kind of strict parent holding the space, like, you know, we're teaching you, but also you have to be careful and know, know the limits. And then here were the, these whales and this oceanic depth. And we were like trying to make sure people weren't basically getting swept under by these humpback whales. Um, so that was like the first, and I woke up just being like, wow, that's wild. It actually almost reminded me of um, it, in the very beginning of the pandemic, like February, January, February, March of 2020, I dreamt a lot about, um, you know, herds of horses getting away and people not listening to me when I was trying to tell them not to get on the horses. <laughs> it was like herding cats, really. It was a lot of anxiety dreams about trying to get people to listen to me <laughs> while things, wild things were getting away from us. Um, so this kind of reminded me of the same, that it was like, whoa, this massive, um, you, you know, these whales, if we were to say they kind of represent the unconscious or the collective unconscious or, or a plumbing the depths of wisdom, these just massive beings and, and like me and Ruben trying to like get people to just like listen and be careful. <laughs> like, okay, this is, so that was the very first night. And since then, I've dreamt about water every night. Another wow. one, I think the next night was we were in a school. So we weren't teaching, but it was an abandoned school and it was flooding. And it was like the dark, you know, where they have the emergency lights that are kind of mm -hmm. strobing. And we were trying to find people in this flood. And, um, and then another oceanic dream last night, what was so interesting, I keep dreaming about humpbacks. We, I, we just came back from a quick trip over to Port Townsend where we take the ferry between Victoria and Port Townsend. When we came back, a humpback breached three times, first very close to the boat, clearly being like, look at me, you know, <laughs> and oh then two gosh. more times, which we saw. So uh, my dream life has been very aquatic mm -hmm. and, um, and big. There's like a, a, a quality of mass and, um, slowness and needing to be cautious. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then interesting how it's, you know, there's been that augury or those signs in my waking life too, of, of, of the mirroring each other and feeling right. like these great beings are going, Hey, look over here. <laughs> Yeah. But what are they trying to say to me, Andrea? What does it mean? That's exactly what I was about to ask you. Are you, have you made any meaning of this yet? Well, uh, I I don't want to turn it too dark too early, but I do think that <laughs> let's go I for think, it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that um, the converging emergencies of large scale cooperation dilemmas mm -hmm. all coming together. I think there's just um, we're not going to be able to keep bracing against collapse mm. in the same way that we have, and I think in in many ways. 
you know, the pandemic has um, rendered us more fragile in a lot of our systems. And even though we keep functioning and, and, you know, hey, when we're traveling, nobody, there wasn't a single mask on the ferry, I don't think. Um, We sat outside so that we could (laughs) stay COVID safe. But, you know, the world, the economy is continuing as though um, we haven't just suffered a mass disabling event. But I think the next few years, um, you know, things are going to really start to land. And I think people, um, particularly economically, and just with our bandwidth, our energy, uh, even if it's not COVID-related, I think we're just going to see a lot more people with, um, you know, uh, adrenal fatigue, mm-hmm. burnout, um, just way less capacity. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that what we know is that as soon as we all have to slow down, because we just can't push through anymore, we're confronted with um, grief and mortality and loss. And that gets us very reflective. And, mm-hmm. and so I think the oceanic quality is that the collective consciousness is um, it's pretty thin right now. You know, mm-hmm. it's like people, uh, there's a lot, there's a lot of weight and we need to go deeper. And I think um, things that I've been talking about and teaching about for a long time, I think I'm going to have to go slower and maybe just repeat myself, you know, mm-hmm. like I think I might just need to not be trying to be generative or adding new things. Yeah. Uh, not a lot of air quality. I don't need to learn more things. I don't need to task mm-hmm. more. I think I need to just stay slow and stay with where people are at, which is um, lots of big feelings and um, trying to, to tap into the depth you know, what, what is the wisdom or the meaning that they can cultivate that keeps mm-hmm. them going when they can't stay on the treadmill anymore? I think, I think that's what these are auguring. I think this is what they're foreshadowing is um, just keep going slower, stay with the feeling, stay with the emotion, and don't feel like I need to add more to the repertoire mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah, yeah, stay with the feelings. I'm, I'm so glad you brought up your dreams. Because I've just been noticing in in my little corner of the world, everyone is kind of going through a lot. Mm-hmm. And if it's not them, it's someone close to them. Mm-hmm. You know, just all these different things of innumerable options. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and grief is just showing up in so many ways. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'll meet you at the waterfront. <laughs> That's so funny you say that because I used to say when I would meet people for one-on-one and we'd see if it was a good fit, I'd say, okay, so before we go any further, Mm. (laughs) let's both check in Mm -hmm. with how we're arriving. And it's kind of like, you know, if we look at the waterline, you and I are standing at the ocean, Andrea, we're looking at the ocean and we're like, then looking at each other and going, do you want to go in? (laughs) I don't know, maybe it depends. What's in there? If it's just, you know, seaweed and like, you know, (laughs) mini fish, like sure. But if we, if we dive in and it's like whale shark, you know, I don't want to go in. So let's just lower the waterline a little Mm. by noticing and naming what am I bringing? What's below the surface? You know, what is there that you can't see, but that I'm carrying right now? Because as you said, we're all just carrying so much invisibly. We're all, we really are just doing the best we can. 
And I know some, you could look at public figures that are like, some of them are really despicable, and it's hard to imagine that that's the best they can do. But actually, they're just traumatized little mammals who are just being shitty, and that is the best they can do, you mm-hmm. know? So, I don't know. Not that I... That doesn't necessarily build my compassion for them, but it helps me get very real very quickly about what we're contending with. You That's know? right. So let's just notice a name. What, what yeah. are we bringing in? Yeah, it's a lot of weight, a lot of grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so speaking of grief, <laughs> um, you know, Earth Day is coming up. And, you know, I want to go so many different places with you on this. So we'll see where we go and we'll see how far we get. You know, you publicly identify as an animist. I do as well, maybe less publicly, but until now. Um, So, you know, an animist is someone who believes that all the things, the plants, the animals, the more than human, all of it have like an essence. Um, How do you relate with the living world? differently now that you're like, yes, I'm an animist. This is what I believe to perhaps before you came to this place. I kind of think that most people are born animists. So I would say I, like most people, (laughs) was born an animist. Um, And it's more like that got educated out of me. And uh, particularly there was a period from I'm going to say like emergent adulthood to my 30s. It's just a survival period. You know, you're learning how to leave home, survive under capitalism, um, try to find someone to kind of hitch yourself to, <laughs> to survive. And, and, and so there were a lot of years, you know, 20 years in there until maybe I was almost 40 where I didn't tend those relationships with the other than human. And in that time, you know, again, I get myself a lot of rope here because I was in survival mode, (laughs) you know, experiencing the world. But I think I was mainly just, you know, certainly spiritually a less interesting person. (laughs) You know, I was less creative, less imaginative, less less attuned. Um, I was more anxious then. I was more lonely more often. Yeah, the trough, right? Like being a human is really about navigating those exhilarating highs and those terrifying and like terribly lonely lows. And there were just more of those and there were more extreme. Um, but then, you know, after I, maybe a little before I turned that, so maybe about the last 10 years, but certainly since I turned 40, I'm 47 now, those relationships were tended and cultivated again more. And I really did start to proceed as though you know, the crow was pretty excited to track me as much as I was tracking it, you know, and that that there's an awareness there that I could participate in, you know, this is participatory universe and those relationships are so, I don't know, they're just like really um, not just delightful, but they help me locate myself, I, that I am an animal. I like being an animal. I like being a little mammal on this planet. I'm not a, a misanthrope that I think, you know, humans are a scourge or anything like that. I, I think we're pretty cool little animals. And um, I like that sense of belonging. So I cherish it a lot more now because I'm tending it. It does feel like I receive a lot of the blessings of the other beings and I can communicate, whether that's 
with my dog or a stranger's dog or with the crocuses when they come out. It really does feel like, oh, I'm excited to be in the world and the, the world is excited to host me. Mm. Oh, I just love that so much, that sense of belonging. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to speak a little bit more about that, the relationship, like the importance of right relationship. You know, you recently published a beautiful cookbook, The Spirited Kitchen, Recipes and Rituals for the Wheel of the Year. And throughout the book, there are rituals and spellcrafting, notes on foraging, symbology, of course, the actual recipes. So what is it about relationship, especially like around foraging and, you know, taking from the earth? Can you just speak to a little bit more about that? Well, I don't know if I am in right relationship with the earth. I only know that I'm trying to be. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to be on my way to right relationship. But I think as a human being, I'm always going to be taking more than my fair share. And so I'm, I'm always a little bit behind in that sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And much of what I've learned about being in right relationship has only come through a lot of study of supremacy culture and recognizing my human supremacy tendencies. And so everything I've learned about diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion absolutely maps onto the tendency of um, uh, my my taking as a human more that I'm offering and giving or more that I'm giving up, you know, more than I'm, it's like learning how to track fairness through the lens of power and rank is a lifelong skill. And so um, it's very important to me to do it, even though I know that I will never be able to balance the scale. You know, I will never be able to go to some mythic right relationship place where I'm not doing harm or where I'm mm -hmm. not taking more than my share. Um, but it's very important to me to undertake the effort to do so. And everything about that reciprocity and mutuality I think has only been enhanced as I've done the same in my human relationships. And then again, kind of mapped it onto my relationship with my dog or my, my, my son's cat or my neighbor or um, the trees outside or, you know, how much of the land we, we rent land, but we garden on it. Well, how much do I put in, you know, flowers that are not of this place versus reintegrate um, and reintroduce native plants there's no pristine prior state you know and mm -hmm. and recognizing um that you know in my marriage i feel like i'm on my fourth or fifth marriage to the same human we've changed so much mm -hmm. and i anticipate that it'll be the same in my relationship with the earth and that you know as i as my body gets older as I hopefully live a long life and hopefully get really old and slow moving like a rock, you know, I think <laughs> I'll just keep spending more time identifying with different beings. There was a period in my life where I really identified with, um, with birds, birds of prey, but all kinds of birds. And then I went through a period where it was very much fair energy, wolf energy, you know, things that were like fairly strong, um, alpha type, <laughs> type species. And then I, you know, started to be like, oh, you know, maybe I'm more like this. Maybe crocuses, maybe roses. I tend to go 
go towards like the charismatic things. And I started to get to know nettles a little more. And I was like, oh, I'm a nettle. <laughs> like, I don't like them because they're so like me. That's what it is. I wish I was Rose but I'm actually nettle. And so then I had to develop appreciation for nettle and, mm-hmm. and nettle really blessed me. You know, nettle had been trying to say for a long time, like over here, like come here. <laughs> we are here people. And uh, it took me a long time to be able to just accept nettle are my people. And maybe as I get older, there'll be different trees than just sequoias and cedars and like big charismatic things. Maybe I'll be like, Oh, Turns out I'm the other thing that I've often overlooked. You know, I'm the wow or something, you know. But maybe then by the time I get very old, I'll, I'll realize like, oh, I'm on my way to soil. And now mm-hmm. I'm on my way to soil. You know, I think, I think that that is what right relationship is to me, is allowing the relationship I have with the earth to, to grow and evolve and to change me and help mm-hmm. me see who I really am more and more. Yeah. One of my college professors, Dr. Weinstock, told us, uh, me and my wife have been married for 50 years and we've had five or six spouses. And just hearing that as a young person, it's like, oh, okay. Like I'm going to change. You're going to change. And what, what he said was the key to the longevity of our marriage is making sure that who I turn into and who they turn into are still compatible. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's just always been like a guiding light in all of my relationships, not just romantic. Just are we still compatible? Yes. I you know I really have so much love for the word compatible and compatibility mm. and for this concept. And I and and I don't lack any love. I have no hate for incompatibility. I really mm. I just feel like, gosh, incompatibility has has to be one of the best ways you can discover that you shouldn't be with this person. Like the gentlest way, I hope that you can mm. discover that like maybe we shouldn't proceed. Yeah. I, but I like that idea. Are you growing together? Are you growing apart? Mm-hmm. In your book, you write. I'm gonna quote you now. Mm. I can't talk about food without talking about systemic oppression. And I can't talk about spirituality without naming collective grief and trauma. My magic and my cooking serve an underlying commitment to truth, justice, spirit, and healing. Okay, this is a really wide berth that I think we could do like a whole series on. (laughs) But if you could just in this moment expound on, you know, how, how does your cooking serve, right? We, I think so many of us just kind of, we either go like, I'm a foodie or I'm just eating to nourish my body. And so like, where's those commitments come into your relationship with, with food and with cooking and with growing your own food? Oh yeah. Food is very, I'm going to say political. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a radical act, I think, to um, harness the means of your subsistence and be able to say like, this is my provender. But that's, a, that's a very important source of my identity and my strength and my meaningfulness and my focus in life. When I think about how we eat at our household, it's, you know, we don't have a lot of range. Like I can go for a long time without leaving the house. I don't have to do a ton of grocery shopping. And just for people's perspective, like I live in the city. We rent a, a city lot. It's got a north-facing yard, so not even great for growing. 
you know, it's pretty big for the city, but the part that we garden on is like, I don't know what it is, 15 by 15, something like that. And then we have all these little side beds. And we just, if you add it all up, it's, you know, it's, it's that same amount again of footprint. And we just happen to live in the California of Canada, meaning the mildest place you can in Canada. And so we do a lot of four-season gardening. We also eat seasonally. So our dear friends, uh, J.B. McKinnon and Elisa Smith, wrote the book, The 100-Mile Diet. And uh, that way of eating really appealed to my husband, Ruben, because his background is in sustainability. And I had gone to cooking school in France where, you know, in the 90s, you would hear about slow food movement. It was just starting to become a thing in North America. It was a thing very much still in like Italy and France. And so I went to cooking school in France in the 90s and the slow food movement was um, not as romanticized maybe here because they have such a like unbroken lineage and almost seemed as like farm to table eating. But on the heels of the 80s, where food had gotten very vertical and gastromolecular cuisine <laughs> was like a whole thing, um, this was a, a, a renaissance. So the life we live now just kind of works on those principles of, of eating what's there. So we don't really eat tomatoes out of season very much unless we happen to come in or, you know, my, my kiddo is like really craving them for snacks or something like that. Um, but like, we just don't. We, we we grow what we can. We can it. We preserve it. And then that's what we're eating. And to me, that helps me stay connected to what I mentioned before, like unhooking from human supremacy, where I can just get a hot house pepper anytime I want, whenever I want. I can get avocados from wherever. It's just like those are treats to us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, those are things that are very special. And Again, you know, when I talk about collabs, one of the ways we approach that is that we try to live more and more today as we anticipate the ones who come after us will be living in 150 or 200 years. And that will probably be much more similar to how we lived 200 years ago. (laughs) And so, you know, I I don't know. I loved Little House on the Prairie as a kid, those books, right? So... Those, that, that way of living and eating feels biologically right to me, and it feels like a moral imperative. I feel compelled to mm-hmm. live that way. And, you know, fewer food miles, local farmers, you know, not exploiting people, not sending stuff all over the world. Like, it just feels like the right way to live for me. Mm-hmm. I have actually had dreams about your garden. Actually, I just need to say that out loud. <laughs> I have dreamed about your garden. You know, I've only seen it like on Instagram and TikTok, but um, I hope it's, it's comp- got a lot of weeds all the time. It's always got chickweed in our garden. Oh, goody. You know, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so then, like the rest of us, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So, um, you know, you and Ruben have this this hashtag, the small and delicious life or hashtag small and delicious life. No, the, Mm -hmm. and for someone who has not been to your house, has not, you know, put my hands in your soil, your garden seems endless. (laughs) And, you know, you grow a a lot of different varieties of things, you know, varieties Mm -hmm. of roses. Um, 
I don't even know. Do you, do you have any idea how many individual things you grow at any given time? Well, one time I just tried to do the flowers and medicinal plants. And once I got over like 250, I was like, right. I don't, I, yeah, so even though it's a small and delicious life, it is filled with variety and diversity. Can you speak to the importance of that in your life? Like, you know, you hear these statistics, like, I don't know about Canadians, but most Americans just eat the same 15 things week after week after week. You find what you like, you eat it, and that's just kind of the end of it. Right. You know, it's funny. Okay, so it look, I see both sides of this, right? Like, yes, okay, it looks like we have a lot of stuff. I suppose, factually, on the face of it, maybe we do have a lot of stuff. But when I really think about what we're eating day in, day out, like a lot of the years, I'll tell you what we eat, Andrea. This is what we eat most of the time, 70, 80% of the time. We eat a piece of meat with a vegetable and, 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 and potatoes. The meat is lightly seasoned mm-hmm. with an herb of some kind, usually rosemary, or if it's fish, it's going to be dill or something. But it's like, it's a lightly seasoned, really good local, mm-hmm. high quality protein. The vegetable has generally come either from our garden or a neighbor's garden or within, you know, 10 kilometers of here, five miles. And it's that vegetable has butter and salt, Mm. (laughs) sometimes a little citrus. And then there's like a vegetable or, you know, a pulse, a legume, but usually it's going to be a potato. And that potato is going to have butter (laughs) i'm telling you it's like not that fancy it's just that when you eat such good quality food it doesn't require very much seasoning and you don't need very much of it you don't have to do anything to it you don't have to turn it into anything um and so we're just really eating out of the garden there's a there's a huge part of the year where our vegetable is going to be either a kale a kale stock or a broccoli or a turnip or a radish or cabbage. Like that is like a big part of the year, but it's going to be really flavorsome. And, you know, then, you know, if I sit and think about it, okay, so we eat very seasonally. There are certain times of year where I'm like, you know, okay, the forsythia comes out and I'm like, Ooh, metal quiche. I want quiche, (laughs) you know, and suddenly we're eating quiches. And then summertime, it's like, oh my gosh, the the cucumbers are on and the the tomatoes are on and, you know, Ruben's bread, we're not eating as much of it. So we're having panzanella and we're having Greek salad. Mm -hmm. We are eating salad. That is like what we are doing and roast chicken with calendula and butter, you know, that's it. And then fall hits, suddenly there's a chill, I need a sweater and I'm like, hmm, cassoulet. And suddenly (laughs) we have cassoulet, you know, so I have these things that just feel traditional for me mm-hmm. that are very like weather dependent. And um, it's not just ingredients, but it's like temperature and what makes us comfortable and how long the days are, how, you know, we're having a lot more small meals during the day in summer with like something bigger at night. Whereas in the winter time, I very often have more of a soup, a bigger meal in the day. And mm-hmm. You know, so I don't know. Yes, I guess we do eat a lot of different things. <laughs> it's pretty varied in a way. But then again, 
it's like a scavenger hunt through the year, right? You're like, oh gosh, the violets are out. I need to make some violet syrup. And like, now I want to make a pound cake so I can put the violet syrup on it. And, you know, some other times of year was like, oh gosh, our strawberries are finally here. This is like this narrow window where we're going to get strawberries. What are we going to do? Okay, I'm going to make tarts and we're going to, you know. And then we have so many raspberries. My God, the raspberries never stop. So there's there's a whole big season where it's like, but you got to take advantage of it because Mm -hmm. you're not getting raspberries the whole rest of the year, really, except for what what we're canning and putting up and preserving. But, you know, that's that's how we're doing it. We're preserving the surplus through freezing and canning and Mm -hmm. fermenting. And then we're just kind of eating what's there. And in a way, it doesn't feel that interesting. (laughs) Because it's like meat and potatoes and veg, you know? (laughs) Oh, that's too funny. Yeah. But what I'm, I first just want to say is I'm hearing that relationship again, right? Like you're noticing what's happening in the land that surrounds your home, you know, and you get excited about it. Uh, We've lived in our home for about five years. I have not had much luck growing food, but I do grow flowers. Anyone who knows me well knows that this is a never ending, you know, excitement of, oh my gosh, my daffodils have come up for the first time. Oh my God, this is so amazing. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I have a a very small little container of strawberries and they Mm. made it through the winter. I guess I'll get fruit. I don't know yet, but I'm really excited and I'm, I'm, you know, tending to my little strawberry pot. I talk to it. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. So I, I'm, I just wanted to mark that relationship again of like, yes, we can have strawberries in November if we go to the grocery store. Um, but when you're growing them and then you're excited for them, you know, I, I'm thinking about, I don't know. I feel like I might've heard this from you, but that saying, um, all a child really needs is for their parents' eyes to light up when they walk into a room. Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm thinking about with your garden. Like you're just so happy to see everyone when they when they come up. <laughs> that is 100% it. I had such an intense, almost just devoted relationship with a pumpkin that I grew last oh, yes. year. Oh, yes, the pumpkin. <laughs> the pumpkin. And I really did feel like the, the pumpkin was like, I love you, Carmen. And it was like, you know, it was like John Cusack holding the, 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 the radio over his head, you know, like it was just like, I love you. And every time I go, I'll be like, wow, the pumpkin is really giving everything for me. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to, in return, you know, take care of that pumpkin. That's yeah, right. it's, that's the most beautiful part when you think about a reciprocal relationship, when you actually can sense that something is like that, that nature is giving you jazz hands. Jazz hands. Oh my goodness. So we are going to come back to grief, but you brought up your kale. Your, and we don't need to get too much into it. It is on your podcast, unless you really are called to speak on this right now. Your dark night of the soul experience in 2008. Um, and then you, you found in your town, a little patch of kale and parsnips and potatoes. And that's who kind of brought you home or brought you home to yourself. Perhaps I don't ever tire of hearing that story, but I want to quote you again, because there's something else you speak about that I feel um, is very timely. You write in your book, quote, people dealing with traumatic experiences, like let's say surviving a pandemic during late, late stage racialized capitalism tend to have a very sensitive nervous system. People who have sensitive nervous systems are often highly intuitive. 
People who are highly intuitive are immeasurably renewed and strengthened through attunement, careful noticing and coming into resonance to the hopefulness inherent in the season's cycles. They provide a container in which to manage the chaos again and again. You don't need to have a garden to remember this. It's a pathway to personal healing and communal care. Yes. (laughs) Please. I quote you constantly about this. Can you just speak more to how the, the, the cycles of nature supports our human nervous systems, especially just again, with everything happening. And that will continue to happen as your dream has foretold. Exactly. Well, one of the things that the nervous system can do is when it's faced with something really big, big problems, big feelings, good or bad, you know, we can be overwhelmed with somebody expressing kindness or love or generosity to us, but we can also be overwhelmed with people expressing cruelty. But one of the things the nervous system can do is when there is enough safeness and we are confronted with something big and overwhelming that is beautiful, is that our nervous system will flip into this pro-social gear. This, so pro-social meaning a desire to collaborate with and cooperate with this larger thing. And so sometimes we call that awe or enchantment or wonder. It just when you're, we're describing like, oh my gosh, the crocuses have come out and the crocuses maybe represent, you know, emergence from the underworld and Persephone's myth. And like I have all the story about it, but also my, I'm having a mirror neuron event when I'm so delighted to see the crocus and it's amplified when I sense that the crocus is giving me death hands and showing off for me. That's right. What the nervous system and the brain will then do is trigger this pro-social impulse within me where I want to collaborate with the crocus and, and the imminence, you know, the energy coming forth from it. And I want to not only cooperate with it, but protect it. And so there's something about becoming enfolded in this larger, greater thing, whether the larger, greater thing is springtime and a sense of re-emergence from a long, dark winter, or whether that enfoldment is in the sunshine beating down on my garden or the sense of the rose. There's something about it that triggers this cascade of hormones in my body of, you know, mm-hmm. neural connections that say, yes, I belong, or I want to participate in this, or I'll have more of that, please. How can I participate? And, and at some point, sometimes we even also want to sacrifice ourselves for that. And I think this is, you know, we can think about Earth Day, right? The, the idea of the environmental movement was people need to care. We need to educate them about what's going on and they'll care about the earth and they'll want to protect it. Unfortunately, we don't have a mirror neuron event with somebody at, you know, giving away recycled plastic shopping bags as an Earth Day promo. (laughs) Right. Right. That is not an enfoldment into awe or some greater thing. (laughs) You actually do have to have the experience of attention and attunement to what is happening outside your door 
and to track it over time and to feel yourself a part of it, to feel yourself beloved, you know? And so when we track the seasons and the cycles and we notice how everything grows and flourishes, flushes, and then decays and then dies, we get to have that little completion, a little cycle ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're trying to do with stress is we're trying to go through little cycles and have little completions and not get stuck in any one part of the stress cycle. And so when we're attuning to nature and we see it going through those cycles, when we're really paying attention, something can happen where we have that mirror neuron event and somewhere along the way, we kind of get enfolded into the process and feel ourselves as part of it. And not only that, but that we want to protect it. We want to ensure its dignity. We want to treat it reverently. And when we find ourselves as part of that, that enfoldment makes ourselves part of nature. It helps us feel that our own renewal is potentially there or our own graceful decline or our own whatever our end is going to be, that mm. we will be part of some larger process that we are protected in or that we are, that we belong in. So I think seeing where you go, the seasons are going to be different. You know, the equator, maybe they only have two seasons. And in Finland, say they, maybe seasons don't resonate with all the listeners, but cycles certainly do. Mm -hmm. And so when we can really track and give our attention to the cycles around us at a, at a certain point, our brains, our bodies will kind of kick into that fear where we allow ourselves to be enfolded in something greater. And we feel that pro-social impulse to want to participate with it. And that therein lies our own renewal. I just love the word pro-social, right? It's a good like, one, hey? It's it like, is. oh yeah, that's a thing that can happen. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we might joke how we're antisocial, but where are we pro-social? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Where do yeah. we belong? Where do we fit in? And what, again, what relationships are we nurturing and, and are nurturing us back? Yeah. And what triggers our desire to like both revere and love, but also protect mm. and collaborate and sacrifice the self for, you know, like there's something in psychology called the reciprocity problem. And there's been tons of studies about it, about how like we will be kind to people because humans are fundamentally kind and compassionate and generous, but we'll do that up to a certain point. Mm -hmm. At a certain point, we do want reciprocity. We do mm -hmm. expect we're not going to keep giving and giving and giving and get nothing back, except when we feel the pro-social impulse and we get enfolded in the greater thing. Wow. Then we're like, I'm little and this is so big, but it's this bigger thing is so much more important than any one person and I'm willing to sacrifice or I'm willing to give something up. And so this is why I tie that into the environmental movement, right? It's like, what are we willing to give up? What? Are, how are we willing to be smaller and let nature have more? Where are we willing to take less than we could? You know, that's the pro-social impulse. Mm. So I just want to repeat that question and just leave a little space around it for people to feel what this feels like in their bodies. What comes up when you hear the question, what are you willing to give up? Okay. And that's a very generous question because I believe in my lifetime, I'm just a couple of years younger than you. So like in my lifetime, I'm pretty certain we're not going to have a choice. 
We're yeah. going to be giving up all kinds of shit that we didn't want to give up. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, you might want to get comfortable with that question. <laughs> So exactly. that when it so that when it comes up, you know how to navigate that loss, and you can grieve it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, is Earth Day griefful for you? No, you know, no. Earth Day isn't important to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tell us I more. Earth Day to me is a cautionary tale. Mm. You know that humans we will just keep doing stuff even when we know it doesn't work. It soothes something else. It soothes the the, the anxiety, uh, and it means that we can spend a whole bunch of our time and energy looking as though we're trying. <laughs> Nobody could say that we didn't. You know, I'm more of a like fail early and recover quickly <laughs> kind of person. So you know, Earth Day's been around a long time. If that kind of education campaign or like I don't know even what it is anymore, it used to be an awareness campaign. I actually do happen to know one of the founders, <laughs> and you know, he would say it was a massive failure, and it's really a relief actually to hear somebody say that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, if it was gonna work, it would have worked by now. Mm-hmm. So what is the purpose of it? And anything that is an awareness campaign or an education campaign is an old paradigm. I mean, the myth of we just need more education. I mean, if the internet doesn't disprove that, I don't know what else. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I feel the need to like jump out of my chair and clap right now. (laughs) Right? I know. It's so obvious. But so, yeah, but it's also not a griefful day in the sense that um, I understand that people you know, the IPCC report comes out or every Thursday we have these kind of retrospectives of like, so how bad is it now? (laughs) Articles and we only have this much time. And those things don't um, make me sad uh, so much anymore. I think because my worldview around climate change is so coherent. Like it just makes sense what has happened, what is happening, and therefore what is likely going to happen. And um, and also because I incorporate an understanding of trauma and how it lives in the body and how it affects our behavior and our relationships and our ability to choose, uh, I just see it as a very large body of humans, a very large collective that's in a a functional freeze. And that's really, functional freeze is not a bad thing. It's actually like the best option when there are no options, right? (laughs) And and so, you know, again, we're all just little mammals doing the best we can. I think of Earth Day as an opportunity to reflect on the poignance of finding ourselves where we are. And as you know, poignance is, I'm, I'm like, that's awesome. If we marry beauty and pain together, like I'm there and I'm like, oh, make it hurt so good. Yeah. I just, I, that's such a, I don't know if it's uniquely human, but it, it is such a um, precious part of being human is being able to experience the tension of beauty and pain, you know, kissing up to each other. And so Earth Day is just another very poignant moment for me. But I don't feel grateful necessarily. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate poignancy? Like physically, do you walk it out? Do you 
garden? You know, do you weed pull it? Squinching and squinching and scrunching first. <laughs> it makes me grip my midline. I grip my chest. I'm like, I I grip the collar of my sweater. <laughs> I have to hold myself. I hold my face a lot. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of like hands on my cheeks and just shaking my head and like, mm-hmm. oh, I do a lot of clasping. I, I, I'm like a fucking Victorian or something. <laughs> I was going to say, you're kind of reminding me of my grandmother right now. <laughs> Actually, oh my heaven. Like I just, and I, and I, and I do a lot of, yeah, sort of grasping hand on chin and shaking my head and like eyebrows up puppy dog and just like, oh, I love you. Oh, I love mm-hmm. you so much. Like I, oh, you know, I, I do a lot of gasping and then, <laughs> and then I find myself like, okay, I've been like gripping the midline for too long and I need to, you know, get up. I usually have a shower. I, I need like warmth and water um, mm-hmm. to, to help that move or a bath. I guess I'm like a fixed water sign. So like <laughs> that kind of thing works really well for me. Hot water, hot mm-hmm. water bottle, anything that's going to like soften and soothe. I also love a good cry. I'm a good crier. Mm-hmm. Um, anything like that, that has that sort of um, bittersweetness, you know, aching, heartache. That's sort of my jam. And I physically, I just try to keep breathing and uh, I can, I try not to be too fixed in my stare. I can get pretty fixed in my eye where I'm tracking something really strong and like leaning forward into it. Sometimes when I'm watching TV, if I'm like seeing something, <laughs> I see myself like kind of leaning forward, eyes really like tracking this thing and just crying, mm-hmm. my eyes open. And um, then I go like, okay, I need to bring on my back. I need to bring on my arms and legs. <laughs> Like right. <laughs> need to let it like the salt water flow a little bit here. Mm. Yeah. Well, speaking of speaking of letting the salt water flow, and I, I can't remember if I asked you this on your podcast, but as someone who I would identify as a feely foodie, can you tell us a time that you've been moved to tears regarding food or plant or you know, the more than human? Mm. Well, I just had kind of like a whole bunch of <laughs> like the Marcel Proust that, or the end of Ratatouille where the image is <laughs> to the olfactory memories. Ah, usually I have to say it's it's less in the eating and, and when I move to tears, it's more in the um, craft, like either in the cooking of something or the harvesting of something. I, I really love craft. I love being that alchemy of skill and intuition come together. Um, I know that I've toured wineries and, you know, talked to winemakers and seen people who are like really into their compost. And I've had lots of very moving moments (laughs) around, around that sort of thing. Um, I think that, you know, recently this wasn't so much around food, but I, I started crying in a course I'm taking with Michael Marriott, who was the head gardener for David Austin Roses for 35 years. And he was teaching about how David Austin came to create what we now think of as English heritage roses. And that made me cry. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people who are doing anything with that kind of commitment, that that's very, that's strong for me. But I think maybe the last time I cried over like actual 
food. I, you know, I'm thinking of nettles a lot today. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of, I, I did a really great nettle harvest and, you know, it wasn't an easy relationship with nettles. They just seemed a little hokey. <laughs> I don't know. They seemed like, I don't know, a witch, witch cliche or something. And he was stringent. Um, but over the years, it's just become so sweet to me how they grow and how prolific they are in the yard and, and when they reappear. And I had this great harvest last year and then um, did like a very quick saute. And I think they went into a quiche and it just, as I was making them, I had this sense that I was making the, I'm going to cry again now. The people in my family who'd had to live really close to the bone and who had to, um, you know, there's been family members, you know, my aunts, my grandma even still talked about this, about being so poor that they put down a horse and they had the family lived eating the horse that whole winter. And there's something about finding resource and resilience in making do with what you have and turning something that is so harsh into a story of survival and caretaking for the people you care about and um, doing your best to survive in a healthful way and all of that. Those sacrifices really do mean something to me. And so it matters that even though I can go down to the grocery store and I can go you know, I could buy a head of spinach and let half of it go bad in my crisper or whatever. I did when I was a younger person. Yeah. It actually matters to me as a way to honor all of those who scrounged and, you know, had very lean springs that I learned how to work with metals and learn to love the flavors or make them work for me. And and I'm really lucky I'm not having to eat a beloved giant ally, you know? Yeah. And those things are, those things are really precious to me. I cry every time we uh, slaughter a rabbit, you know, like yeah. those things are really important to me to kind of recognize the, I think a lot of the pent up intergenerational trauma and stress kind of comes out when I have those moments of like, I don't have to eat this way, but I choose to, and mm. I really like it, and it's and it's delicious, and I make it good, and I make it beautiful, and it feels like a very healing act of repair and ancestral veneration yeah. and reverence. Thank you for sharing that story about the horse. That must have been really hard for them. Oh, yeah, and so much shame. So much shame yeah. for people who, you know, uh, my great great grandpa John Graham was like a horse whisperer and they worked with Highland ponies and came over to Alberta. And um, the stories of just how hard it was uh, as a new Canadian for a couple generations and the dust bowl and you know, not being able to feed your animals, there's so much shame. Still, I mean, it's still talked about in hushed tones by my mm-hmm. aunt. But oh yeah, they had to put down like <laughs> just like so much shame, so much pain. Yeah, very difficult. 
Yeah. Yeah. Would you be willing to speak on why it's important for you to do this type of ancestral care and, and the healing of that intergenerational trauma? Well, I mean, we're all downstream from a couple of world wars and lots of mass immigration and migration and um, intercontinental slave trade, you know, like there's just all these different ways in which, um, you know, we were, talked about this a bit earlier, but like those pens are coming home to roost. And, um, you know, for folks who like things a little more rational, like science tells us that we don't have to have experienced those traumas to carry them in our body. And what we also know is that if we don't have some ways to grapple with the stress of those things, and really what a stress is like unresolved emotion, you know, like it's grief with nowhere to put it, or it's powerlessness, or it's anger, these different emotions that don't have anywhere to go. If we don't grapple with those and find some outlets for them, they somatize, they become illness, they become, you know, autoimmunity, they become fatigue, they, you know, they somatize, something comes up, illness doesn't come from nowhere, it's a very slow process. And so I think it's important that just in the, you know, even the collapsnik in me is like your health is your number one asset in any kind of collapse scenario. So anything I can do to grapple with that, I'm going to do. So there's the benefits of it. I'm just like, there's an imperative. There's a health imperative. There's also a legacy imperative. Like I want to deal with it so that my kid, who's already this little queer, anxious artist, you know, like doesn't have more to deal with because I haven't made our lineage. I haven't gotten current with our lineage. I haven't gotten up to date. And where are we in our relationship with our past? And so um, there's, there's kind of like some very material and tangible and physical realities that I'm contending with when I'm doing ancestral veneration is that I'm, I'm trying to get current. It's really important to be, to be up to date in all our relationships, and that includes with our dead. I do find that coming from a long line of gardeners, both like flowers and veggies and all of that, and um, a very long line of uh, animal uh, husbandry, excellence in animal husbandry, it's very important for me to create the conditions where the post-traumatic growth presents itself. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a cliche because it's true that if we can inherit trauma, we can also inherit strength. That's and right. So there are latent skills. There's, you know, intuitive knowledge. There's all these different ways in which the blessings of my lineage want to appear. And so I need to show up and make myself available and be amenable to that. <laughs> so I do my best. That means that I have to let go of perfectionism. I have to let go of capitalism, you know, comparison. I have to let go of um, filling all of my time with generativity and productivity. I need to create spaciousness so that the gifts of my lineage can, can be revealed and I can help nurture them and 
you know, that's what we call talent, right? <laughs> like there's a the gift that you come in with and I like hope that I can make myself available, but then there's the talent that it's like, okay, there's a kernel of something here and I could hone it. I could refine it. And that would make my family proud. And my family isn't necessarily, or in my case, it's not the ones who are living. It's the ones who are dead. It's, it's my ancestors. So that relationship has sustained me, even when the relationships with my living family have been strained or, you know, um, uh, cut off. Those relationships with my ancestors have helped remind me who I really am. They've helped me remember the, the character of my lineage when my most recent experiences with some of my family members was like, not been a net positive, I would say. And so it's it sort of distorted and tainted my sense of the character of my lineage and therefore who I was. So being able to like connect with ancestors and honor them by, you know, honing some of those interests that I had that it turns out <laughs> I share with, you know, a couple generations ago, that has been very clarifying about who I am in this life and unburdened by the, the trauma that I experienced with, you know, immediate family members growing up. And it's like I was able to sort of take that filter off and um, get more in touch with the true nature of what my, my blessings and gifts and talents were. And that feels really like I want to, I want to honor them. I want to make them proud. I want to pay them back by, by doing a good job and by showing up and, and um, you know, making it beautiful for them. And I do also want to feel that when it's my time to die, I, I, am, I am also current so that I'm not leaving behind a debt for my child, you mm. know, or a gap or a deficit where they're trying to fill in the blanks. <laughs> you know, it's like, where do I come from? What are my inheritances from my various lineages? What are some of the burdens or the challenges that I might need to? So it's not just like my your your medical record. That's really important and good to have if you can have it. But it's the other record too that actually plays a very um, direct role in what our medical records even are. Mm -hmm. you know? Like I wanted to have as complete a family record for my my child as possible. And even if I didn't have a child, that would feel again kind of morally right for me to feel that I was. I had as complete a record as possible, um, you know, of course, through my bias lens. But, yeah, so my ancestral veneration practice is, is also my collapse practice, is also my parenting practice, mm -hmm. is also my food practice. Yeah. Yeah, it's all related. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've really brought us to our final question really beautifully. So thank you for that. Um, and before I ask it, I just want to say one thing about those those lovely nettles of yours. I know Ruben has been working on, you know, his pizza dough. Have y'all ever put the nettles on a pizza? Gosh, you know, I don't think we have. And I don't know why we haven't. Yes, I highly recommend it. I haven't done it myself yet. I'm also working on my pizza dough. <laughs> But, um, but I've had a nettle pizza at a restaurant years ago. And I mean, I'm still talking about it. <laughs> it yeah. was so delicious. Please do it and let us know about it. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm on it. Thank you for that. I don't know why yes. we never thought of that. Pizza is like one of our 15 things we eat. That's right. 
same. <laughs> oh, and so now for our final question, Carmen, knowing that we carry our grief in tandem with carrying our, our joy and our love, what is your life recipe for tending grief? I think my life recipe for tending grief would be similar to a bread recipe. And in our house, it's lazy sourdough and you know, no need <laughs> style. So I'm not a person. I don't think I have to feed my grief. I can find it every, everywhere. And I'm okay with that. You know, like my grief is ever present. And if at any time I need some release, all I have to do is give it a little bit of attention and it bubbles right up. So mm. it's like, I just need that cold start or a <laughs> tiny little bit of flower, get it going and it's going to rise. And then I just give it my time and space. And, um, you know, there's that show now on TV with um, Harrison Ford shrinking and he's a psychologist who gives the advice, just set a timer for 15 minutes, play the saddest song you can think of, let all your grief come out. And then when it's over, you just stop. And honestly, I am like that. Mm -hmm. Like once I spent a couple of years having monthly vigils uh, for grief, and even though I I I'm back on the monthly now, but I I sort of went to seasonally for about a year in the Numinous Network. What I found though was that my grief could be left alone most of the time, and it and it would be settled. You know, it would be okay. It wasn't popping up and interrupting me. I didn't need to tend to it. Like you see those sourdough kind of things where it's like, oh yeah, you got to set a time. You got to be on it all the time. I don't have a high need grief. Mm. My grief is always there. And if I just, if it knows when it's going to be its time, it's going to come on. It's going to perform. What I, what I noticed is that my grief started to just migrate. They left my marriage. They kind of left my parenting. They left my everyday. They left my you know, rainy mornings. And my grief just started to migrate to that one day a month when I would hold grief vigil. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, it was like always there, but just kind of like settled and, and chill. And then I sit down to the vigil. I think, oh, I, you know, I'm not really feeling my grief, but I'd open the space and bam, the, the tears would come, floodgates would open, I'd fall. And after a few minutes, it would just dry up. It would just kind of stop. And then I, you know, maybe sit there quietly and, you know, blot my tears. And then it would start, have another wave. And then when I got to the end and it was like, and sing, <laughs> it would, it would just stop. And it took a couple years of learning what my grief practice was. And um, just kind of honing it. Mine is very simple. It's, you know, even if I wasn't hosting a visual, I would do the same thing. I would just like put on a playlist about 20 minutes long. I take out a full scat piece of paper. At the top of it, I write things I am grieving now. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you, for, for over a year, I go, number one, my mother. <laughs> it, was just, like, it was just predictable. That just like came up every time. And I totally remember, like probably month like 13 or something of a monthly vigil, it wasn't my mother. Mm. It was something else. And that was like, oh, that's interesting. And over time, that grief just 
we've kind of just transformed into, I don't know, some deeper levels of compassion and other mm. things came up. But that's all I do is I write a list, one, one and let it go. What are the things I'm grieving now? And I just write them down and I cry for as long as I want for each one. And then at the end of the playlist, that's it. I do a little somatic practice. I shake it off. And after some practice, it's a grief is a practice. It's a thing I do. It's a process. You call it a ritual or an exercise. But what I found is that it then just did start to kind of take care of itself. And my grief feels a lot less um, urgent, overwhelming, mm-hmm. needful, pressing. It really does feel like just another kind of another member of my committee <laughs> there, <laughs> but it's another relationship. I just tend it, you know, and if something comes up between vigils or between exercises, it, it knows I'm going to pay attention. And I know that it's not going to, you know, totally suck me under. So mm-hmm. I think having a, a practice of free where you give it some space and you do a thing and you acknowledge deeply and that combined with some death literacy and ability to, let things end. Mm. Um, th- those two things combined have really taken care of grief, and I don't need to tend to it. It's not fussy anymore. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that, for your time, your stories. I really appreciate you, Carmen. Thank you. I appreciate you too, Andrea. And I am so excited you're doing this podcast. <laughs> I can't wait to hear all these stories. I love recipes for grief. This is such brilliant and you're so brilliant. I'm so glad you're sharing it with the world. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Recipes for Grief. You can find more information about today's guest on the podcast page of your player, as well as their recipe card that's available on my website, andreasextondumas.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-A S-E-X-T-O-N, D as in donut, U-M-A-S dot com. If you'd like to share your recipe for grief, leave a three-minute voicemail at the following number, and your message may be played on a future episode as a listener shout out. That number is 510-426-6041. That's 510-426-6041. 6041. Find me on Instagram and TikTok at Recipes for Grief. And now, here's a little advice from my grandmother. Life isn't easy. You just have to make the best of it.